0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Ray Vaughan Williams ranks among the most versatile, influential, and enduringly popular British musicians of his era. Throughout his wide-ranging career as composer, conductor, editor, scholar, folk song collector, teacher, author, administrator, and philanthropist, Vaughan Williams worked tirelessly to improve his standards and quality of British musical life. We're familiar with such concert staples as uh, Talis Fantasia, the Lark Ascending, a London Symphony, Songs of Travel, and Serenade to Music, among others. And this is the sesquicentennial year of Rayfon Williams' birth. The American Festival Chorus and Orchestra is presenting a program of some of his most beloved choral and symphonic works. That's taking place this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. And there will be a pre-concert lecture, Bright Portals of the Sky, the Choral Music of Rayfon Williams, given by Drake University Professor of Music History Eric Saylor. And that'll be uh, an hour before the concert at 6.30. You can get tickets at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Eric Saylor is a mentioned professor of history at uh, Drake University, um, professor of music history at Drake University, and author of several books, including the uh, just published uh, a biography, Vaughn Williams from Oxford University Press, out uh, just this year. Eric Saylor is former president of the North American British Music Studies Association. Uh, professor uh, Saylor, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tom. You're uh, speaking to us, uh, I guess, from what, Des Moines area?
1: Yep, from uh, the, the basement of my home in Des Moines. We've got oh. a little fall break going on, so it's a pleasant <laughs> day to be talking with, uh, with you all in Utah.
0: Well, very good. By the way, I was uh, reading the uh, you know reading from your book, and uh, you, you give acknowledgments, according to, uh, including to your family, and you promised them at the, at the end of that that you'll come up from the basement now, now that you've finished your book. I,
1: I, it's true. It uh, took there's... a little bit of time to uh, actually go ahead and live up to that promise, but we're we're making progress.
0: Good. The, the, the book's published now, so that's wonderful. Uh, how did you get into uh, English pastoral music in this era, and Vaughan Williams in particular?
1: Well, it actually goes back a very long ways. When I was quite young, of all things, um, I was introduced to the British television show Doctor Who, uh, when I was about 10 years old or so, a friend of mine saw it on repeats on Iowa Public Television, and he said, this is very strange and unusual, and I think you might like it. So I watched it, and it hit that sort of line between something that was just familiar enough to make sense and just weird enough that you want to get back for more. And this was sort of my first point of contact with anything having to do with British culture in any meaningful way. And I was hooked from the very outset, and that took me to... All kinds of British literature and movies and other television shows and other things like that, and so it became an interest when I was young. By the time I got into graduate school, it was still something that was sitting in the background of things that I had been interested in, and I realized fairly quickly that there was an awful lot of really impressive British music that was out there that was really under-researched. It wasn't taken terribly seriously in the broader musicological community, and so it seemed like a fairly good area to go ahead and explore when I was beginning to do more advanced research for my master's thesis and doctoral dissertation. So that uh, that really kind of got the ball rolling for me in those respects. Von Williams was someone who I had played a little bit. I had sung a little bit when I was a student. Um, but then I, when I started to check out what the state of research was, I realized there was an awful lot of work to do. So I figured I might as well do some of it.
0: What, uh, what did you learn I an awful lot? Maybe you can give us some highlights uh, in, in your research. There, there is, you point out you're the, the first, I think, American writer to, to do a biography, right? That's
1: right, although there have been several other Americans who have been making contributions in, in really fantastic ways in various kinds of uh, essays and other uh, articles that have been published and so on. I'm fortunate to have a lot of really excellent colleagues here on this side of the ocean to be able to work with. Um, I got my first really big break when I was a master's student. In fact, I was out west of the time. I did my master's work at Arizona State University, and I had kind of heard through the grapevine that there was work that was going on at the British Library, uh, the, the head of music collections there, putting together a collection of Von Williams's correspondence, and I heard that it was a little bit behind schedule, so I thought that I might try to apply for a Fulbright scholarship. On the basis of helping put this thing together, so with the sort of confidence of youth, when you don't know that you shouldn't do a thing um, and that it's probably not a very smart idea, I simply wrote out of the blue to Hugh Cobb, who was then the director of music collections at the BL, and I said, "Hey, I hear you're doing this project. Uh, I understand it's a little behind schedule. Would you like to have someone work for you for free uh, for a year, if you know this Fulbright works out, and in exchange you give me a desk at the library?" And access to all the scores and materials I need to complete my master's thesis on the on Vaughan Williams's Pastoral Symphony, and he said, "Sure." I went, "Oh, well, that was easy," and uh, you know, followed from there. I wound up not getting the Fulbright, but I did manage to go ahead and piece together enough other fellowships and um, and other monies to be able to make that work for that academic year. Many years later, I realized uh, what an incredibly silly idea that was to go ahead and actually just ask openly like that, and uh, Hugh said he regularly got questions like that about every week or so, and I asked what made him say yes, and he said I was the person who asked the right question at the right time, and I had the right kind of knowledge to be able to do it. So that kind of break was absolutely huge for me. It got me um, working with von Williams' correspondence and a lot of the primary sources and getting myself familiar with the main Archival collections at the British Library that are there for Vaughn Williams' work, and I managed to go ahead and continue that for the next several years when I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Michigan, and ever since working at Drake.
0: Well, let's. I uh, have some pieces of music uh, queued up before we go too much longer. Let's let's hear some uh, some Von Williams. Uh, this I think is a fairly early piece, uh, "Fantasy on a Theme" by Thomas Tallis. Um, do you want to say anything about this? I've, I've just uh, I've selected just a couple of minutes. Sort of right in the middle of the of of the piece.
1: Sure, it's it's an absolutely beautiful work. It's one of his um, first early successes. It had its premiere in 1910 at the Three Choirs Festival, and uh, it's a it's based on a psalter tune, It's sort of like a hymn tune, essentially by the great 16th century composer Thomas Tallis. He was William Byrd's teacher, and it's this beautiful austere setting in a in a uh, medieval mode it's a, a phrygian mode and von williams takes this particular melody sets it up for two string orchestras and string quartet and has this beautiful free treatment of it throughout it's just an absolutely glorious work
0: well, let's hear just a couple of minutes here from the from the middle of the piece so this is toronto symphony orchestra peter ungen uh, conducting let's hear this just a bit So, we'd love to hear more, but uh, we, we, uh, we have some other pieces to, uh, later in the program. That's uh, from uh, Von Williams' uh, Fantasia, Talis uh, Fantasia. Um, so, uh, how would you situate uh, Von Williams' uh, music in, you know, just overall classical music and, and in British music?
1: Well, I think it's probably fair to say he's one of the most important figures in British music in the entire 20th century, because he's so involved in so many different aspects of work. He's deeply engaged with wanting to try to improve the perception of British music. I think that's one of the biggest things that he does. And he does it in part by his work with Indigenous traditions, with local practices, particularly English folk music traditions. Um, This was an area of interest that was growing when he was still a student at the Royal College of Music in the 1890s and at Cambridge at the same time. And for a long time, there was a general assumption that there was no such thing as as English folk music, that there wasn't really a peasant class to go ahead and make that. There was Scottish folk music and Welsh and Irish, all that was there, but the English didn't have that. This, of course, is entirely wrong. And Vaughn Williams, when he first heard uh, people singing folk music. He actually found heard it first at a at a vicarage tea that he attended in 1903. Although he was certainly aware of its existence prior to that, when he heard someone actually singing it, it just hit him like a thunderbolt. And he proceeded to go out and become one of the most active collectors of folk songs that was out there. He collected about 800 or so between about uh, 1903 and about 1910 or thereabouts. It was a really astonishing level of both professionalism and range of what he collected. And in doing that, kind of helped establish the idea that there was nothing about the English people that precluded them from making music. They were, in fact, intrinsically musical because there's this indigenous tradition that they made themselves. And so he borrowed aspects from that style in his own music. You can hear various pieces of his that are either based on folk song or draw on aspects of folk song to inform his own style. But he's also a very cosmopolitan figure. He's extremely well aware of all kinds of different traditions that are going on around Europe. He is he studies at the Royal College of Music where he is steeped in the traditions of people like Brahms and of Wagner. He goes on after graduating from there to work with uh, the great composer Max Bruch in Berlin for about uh, half a year or so in 1897 and 98. About 10 years after that thinks his own style is getting a little bit stodgy, goes off to Paris and works with uh, Maurice Ravel for a few months to kind of improve his approach to orchestration and a few other techniques. In between there, he takes on uh, the responsibility of editing a hymnal because he really doesn't like a lot of Victorian hymnody. He thinks it's all sort of sentimental slush and thinks people deserve better, so he spends two years working with hymn tunes of various kinds. So it's a huge range of stuff that he's engaged with, and they all come together to form this new idiom of his own expressive voice, which is really unlike almost anything else that's out there. And he's one of the first people to really manage to go ahead and achieve that kind of success and that kind of um, idiomatic sound that a lot of English composers have been struggling for for a very long time.
0: What was his influence on later uh, composers, especially British composers?
1: It's, it's profound. Um, particularly after about the First World War, he really kind of comes into his own voice by that time. He served in the First World War. He worked with the uh, Royal Army Medical Corps, and he was an ambulance wagon orderly during the time. So he served both on the Western Front in France as well as on the Eastern Front in Greece. Um, he was later promoted to the Royal Garrison Artillery, and so he was working with heavy guns as well. I think his experience in the war really made him look back on what he had done up to that point. And a lot of it was either fairly large-scale, kind of maximalist, big works, or stuff that was very clearly influenced by one or two particular models. After the war, there's a really strong consolidation. His works shrink down in size and scale and scope, but they increase in many ways in their intensity. And what we get from this is a style that's often referred to as the English pastoral style. And that seems to be something that is wholly and entirely local. There's really almost nothing else like it out there. And for a lot of budding English composers, uh, they really respond to this hugely well and, you know, adapt aspects of this, copy aspects of it and continue to try to compose in this style for the better part of the next two decades or so
0: you write in your book. Uh, we're talking about Von Williams out from Oxford University Press. We're talking with Eric Saylor, by the way, uh, professor of music history at Drake University. Um, you, you say that uh, Von Williams is a, is a figure of paradox and contradiction. One of those was, is, uh, you call the outdated assumption that his musical influences began and end with English folk song. And you talked about that that, that progression. What if you could expand uh, on that? What uh, uh, you know that um, I guess we have this popular conception, but uh, Von Williams goes beyond that.
1: He absolutely does. Um, I think it's it's that sort of case that we get with von Williams of people kind of loving into death. There's that sense that you have sometimes when, you know, for example, if you're familiar with a particular band or singer or performer that you really, really like, there's part of you that really likes that a lot and you kind of want to share that with people. But if the person becomes if the band or the performer becomes popular, well, then maybe there's that sense that, oh, gosh, lots of people like him now. I'm not sure if it's quite special anymore, if that's something I should really be sort of you know admitting that I like. And there's a little bit of that tension, I think, with some of Vaughn Williams' music, too. Um, in a lot of the critical community, there had been, during his lifetime, a real desire to try to figure out a distinctively English music. What would that be? How can we get an English composer or an English or a British kind of sound that's capable of taking its place alongside all of the other you know, works in the you know great Western European canon of musics. And there's that tension between wanting to go ahead and participate and yet also kind of enjoying to nurse the resentment of being on the outside. Vaughn Williams is someone who I think bridges that gap pretty neatly. He can draw upon lots of different practices and combine them in his own music so that it's not just narrowly English. There are certain authors and certain critics who want to see him that way and portray him that way. That's a very popular um, frame that he's put in relatively late in his life, from about, about 1950 on or so. You really see a lot of his early biographers do that kind of thing, portraying him as sort of a spirit of England personified in music. But once we get to the 1960s and we see the first biographies written by his second wife, Ursula, and uh, a close friend of his, Michael Kennedy, who wrote his first work study, those came out in 1964 and began to help set the record straight a little bit on that. But it still was a very, very long time coming before people started to think about Paul Williams as something other than just an English composer and more like a composer, someone who's works and influence have resonance beyond just his own country and his own time.
0: Well, let's uh, head toward a break here. We're uh, talking about Ray von Williams uh, with uh, his uh, biography. One of his biographers, a uh, new book out from Oxford University Press just this year, is called von Williams. The author is Eric Saylor. He's professor of music history at Drake University. Um, and he'll be coming uh, to Logan to uh, give a pre-concert talk Ahead of a concert by the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, they're presenting a program of Ray Fon Williams music. And ahead of that, uh, that's at 7.30 uh, p.m. this Saturday in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. And there will be pre-concert lectures, I mentioned, Bright Portals of the Sky, given by uh, Professor Saylor. That's at 6.30 p.m. And you can get tickets uh, from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra website, um, AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Uh, we'll have more following this. You're listening to Access UTime, Tom Williams. We're talking about music, specifically the music of Ray von Williams, a great uh, British composer. And we're talking with uh, Eric Saylor, who's professor of music history at Drake University. Among his books is uh, the book just out this year from Oxford University Press called Von Williams. And uh, Eric Saylor will be giving a pre-concert uh, lecture called Bright Portals of the Sky, the Choral Music of Vaughan Williams. That's at 6.30 p.m. on Saturday in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. Then uh, the concert by the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra uh, follows at 7.30 p.m. Uh, this is the sesquicentennial year of Vaughan uh, Williams' birth. The American Festival Chorus and Orchestra is celebrating with the music of Vaughan Williams. And you can get tickets to that concert, which once again is this Saturday, uh, from their website, AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Uh, so, uh, Eric Saylor, I want to uh, begin this segment of uh, the program here with uh, some more music of Ray Williams. Williams. Uh, I just selected the beginning minute or two from the fourth movement of the London Symphony, or it's called A London Symphony, right? Uh, anything you want to say about this?
1: Uh, it's a wonderful piece. It's sort of his last big gasp of romanticism before the First World War. This had its premiere in 1914, it said it was inspired in part by a suggestion from his good friend George Butterworth, and it's attempting to capture not necessarily very specific sort of representational aspects of the city, but Paul Williams said it was trying to capture more of the spirit, what London made him feel when he moved through it, and he hoped that his listeners would find something that moved them as well about the city if they knew it when they listened to the work.
0: All right. So well, let's uh, hear uh, just, uh, just a bit of this, one or two minutes. So there is uh, just a bit uh, from the fourth movement of uh, London Symphony, Rayfon Williams. That performance um, is London's Philharmonic Orchestra, Sir Roger Norrington. Um, so you talked a bit, uh, Dr. Saylor, about uh, Rayfon Williams' service in World War One, and uh, and how that affected him. He uh, his life long life included World War Two as well.
1: It absolutely did, and. In war forms a, a pretty big bit backdrop to an awful lot of his life. He also made it through the Boer War as well. He didn't serve in that one, but it was certainly something that was very disruptive uh, early on in his life that he was concerned about. And this, this notion of war and conflict is one that seems to come back pretty frequently throughout his career. Um, in the Second World War, he was, of course, a little bit disappointed that he couldn't serve, uh, certainly he was far too old to go ahead and do that then. And then technically he was too old to do it in the first world war. He actually volunteered at the age of 42 um, and he could have gotten out because the conscription limit was at the age of 40. But uh, by the time he was pushing 70, you know, that was definitely a little bit too far. So he found other ways to contribute. He began um, doing very humble things like uh, scrap metal drives and uh, helping go ahead and support Concerts to help improve morale at home. He also turned to writing music that would also try to do this as well, including his early forays into film music writing, which he picked up after he was 70 years old and he found to be a really invigorating mode of composition. And he did a lot of it for propaganda films, basically, things that were put together for groups like the Ministry of Information uh, at the time that were meant to go ahead and either try to help improve morale or to go ahead and provide explanations for things that people should be doing during wartime.
0: What was about film music that he found invigorating?
1: Well, he really liked the, um, the limitations that it provides. He said at one point, you know, when you're told that you need 30 seconds of music, they don't mean 31. They don't mean 29. They mean 30. Uh, that's what you have to do. He said it was great for students who were apt to be dawdling in their ideas or think that everything that they write is, is an immortal masterpiece. It's not, and you need to be able to figure out how you can go ahead and cut that down. He said he also liked sometimes the challenges that came um, because he composed film music a little differently than, than most people do. Um, a lot of the time, there's a, there's a technique that's sometimes referred to as Mickey Mousing. That is to say, you, you get to see a, a rush of the, of the film that's happening, and you will compose to specifically to the scenes that you see in, in the film. Von Williams did a little bit differently. He had a description of what the scene was going to be like, and then he would go ahead and write music for that, and then he'd go back and forth with the music director based on things like, okay, we thought the scene was going to be this long. Now it's been cut down. Also, Uh, We got a great shot of some sunlight glinting off the water at this particular point. Can you go ahead and put something in your music to go ahead and reflect that and knock out 10 seconds while you're at it? Um, You have 10 minutes to do this. Oh, okay. So he would wander off for a little bit, give the orchestra a break, take away about, you know, eight measures and then add a little... Uh, passage for harp and piccolo and then boom, there you got some sunshine reflecting off of the water and everybody gets to come back. They've had their break. They're happy. And now you've got something that sounds totally different. So he, he really loved the flexibility of that. It was a little bit like the way that people write ballet, that kind of collaborative aspect. And he thought that film provided, uh, the kinds of opportunities for dramatic, um, you know, expression that even Wagner hadn't dreamt of.
0: Uh, you write uh that Von Williams was a great champion and advocate for amateur uh, music making. In Fact you uh, you've written a very interesting blog uh, post on the Oxford University Press blog called Rafe von Williams and the Art of the Amateur in which you uh, you you muse uh, uh, about the appeal of such programs as Americans uh, America's got talent. How what would uh, Von Williams have thought of something like that? I think it's kind of hard to
1: say. For stuff like that it's there's a little bit of maybe hope that people uh, who participate in this are going to be able to use this to sort of launch a professional career. I mean, we've certainly seen that with shows like American Idol or, you know, on the other side of the pond, you've got things like the Great British Baking Show where amateur bakers then maybe go on to release a cookbook or something like that. Um, but I think he would like the, the broader idea that these are all, technically speaking, amateurs. These are not people who are already doing this, money. They're not doing it as their main job. It's something that they've come to because they're, you know, a welder or they're a primary school teacher or they work in marketing or something like that, but they really enjoy, you know, baking on the weekends, or they like to go, you know, ballroom dancing, or they enjoy making art in in their spare time. For him, that was really, really important. He thought that the opportunity for people to make music and not just consume it was something that was the real key to having a vital artistic community. Um, He was really, really fond of quoting his close friend, uh, composer Gustav Holst, who said that if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. (laughs) So even if you're not great at it, if it's something that gives you pleasure, it's the whole act of being creative that's important. It doesn't have to be for anyone else. It can just be to please yourself. And the opportunity to make something, to think of something, to engage in that creative process that reaches beyond the everyday, he thought that was such an important aspect of life for people and, and encouraged it all throughout his own career. wrote about it and spoke about it you know, for the better part of six
0: decades. You write in your book, um, he had a rock-solid belief that music should be part of everyone's life. I guess that's what you were just talking about.
1: Yeah, very much that, and he he really put his money where his mouth was on this. So one of my favorite examples uh, of this is he's uh, not a, a practicing Christian himself. He was raised in the Church of England, as most people were, but you know wasn't really a, p- a particularly devout believer or anything like that. And by the time he was attending Cambridge, he was. Pretty much an atheist. He may have drifted into sort of an agnosticism later on, but it's it's hard to tell. He certainly doesn't consider himself a any kind of, of standard church-going Christian at all. And yet, um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, he takes two years to go ahead and edit this volume of hymns that becomes the English hymnal. It's this extremely wide-ranging and very imaginative collection. It draws upon um, church music and hymns from all throughout Europe and the United States. He commissions new works for it from contemporary composers. He takes folk songs and arranges them in new hymn settings because he felt that a lot of people only got their exposure to music. The only contact they ever got with music was when they went to church on Sunday. And because he thought so much of what was in hymnals at the time, particularly the the dominant hymnal of the day, hymns ancient and modern, he thought it was just sort of sentimental schlock. He didn't like it at all, and he thought it was unworthy of you know people who are going to church. The whole idea of going to church is to try to enter a world bigger than your own, and if the music doesn't help you do that, well, then it's not good music. So he takes it extraordinarily seriously and wants to ensure that for these people who only have this kind of contact, that they should have some jolly good music to go ahead and be able to perform when they're there. And I think that's really telling, something that he doesn't even subscribe to philosophically or, um, or religiously. He knows and understands it's important to people and that they deserve to have a high quality experience when they are trying to engage with something bigger than themselves.
0: We're hearing some of the music of Refund Williams here on the program today, um, talking, of course, about Refund Williams, great uh, British composer. I want to I want to hear just uh, oh, a couple of minutes, Professor Sailor, from uh, the beginning of the Lark Ascending. Um, and I think if people don't know von Williams, you know, very well at all, they they probably have heard of the Lark Ascending, maybe one of his most famous pieces. You know, what do you want to say about this? Before we hear a bit of it.
1: Yeah, I think. You're you're absolutely right. It's it's a piece that, for uh, gosh, I think at least fifteen years at least uh, regularly tops uh, the classic FM charts in the United Kingdom as people's very favorite piece of uh, of British music, and it has a, a little bit of a reputation. I think kind of the, kind of the way that we sort of take people like Mozart or Haydn for granted. You know, uh, particularly you, you'll hear them and go, oh, it's it's Mozart again, ho-ho. Oh. hum. Yeah, we've we've heard all this, and and because of that familiarity, we kind of lose sight of just how remarkable the work really is. Um, because while this is a work that maybe has a sort of cozy reputation, it's the piece your grand likes a, a whole lot. It's it's really uh, quite a remarkable piece because it doesn't fit into any category. Uh, it's subtitled a romance for violin and orchestra. Um, but it's not really a romance in the sense that we understand it from a 19th century perspective, which talks about these sort of you know, small-scale character pieces, and it's much bigger than that. But it's also not really a concerto, because it's just one movement, about 11, 14 minutes long, depending on how fast people go, so it doesn't fall into the right genre or form, and only has a relatively small orchestra that goes with it. It's not really a showpiece, because it's not immensely flashy but it is virtuosic and challenging just, you know even though it's got you know three cadenzas in it so it's it kind of stands alone it's unlike almost anything else in the repertoire for solo violin which is why i think it's maybe captured the imaginations of so many people for so long
0: Well, let's just hear a couple minutes from the beginning of this. This version is Sir Neville Mariner conducting Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. Violinist is Iona Brown. This is just a bit from Vaughn Williams' The Lark Ascending. So just a bit from the, the Larkus ending. Uh, by the way, um, I wondered, are, there, are there, is there a piece or two or three that uh, you would really advocate that we we should be more familiar with? We've talked about some of the most famous ones uh, that are in people's minds get played a lot. Uh, are there some pieces that you wish would be played more?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, we all have our, our own special favorites. One thing that I found really gets uh, a little bit underplayed is some of his piano music. Um, it has kind of a reputation of being not terribly idiomatic for the instrument. And I think if you find a piece like his piano concerto, for example, it's a very difficult piece in a lot of ways. It's very spiky and angular and and much more sort of conventionally modernistic than we typically associate with his style. But there are a couple of smaller scale pieces that are just absolutely Exquisite. There's a, a little work called The Lake in the Mountains that is based on uh, some music that he wrote for a film, came out in the 1940s. There's a, uh, a little um, prelude on a hymn tune by the uh, Renaissance-era composer Orlando Gibbons, a hymn tune on song, uh, prelude on song 13 by Gibbons, which again, these are just gorgeous, tranquil, remarkable little works, and you, you hear them and you wonder why you haven't heard them before. Um, the ones, though, of course, that I would love to be able to hear more of would be his symphonies. Because, for my money, I think he is the, the, the finest all-round symphonic composer of the 20th century. We just don't hear his symphonies terribly often here in the United States. Occasionally, the London Symphony uh, makes it on programs, maybe the fifth from time to time. But I can tell you from personal experience, when they do make it on to a program, people are just stunned. I heard a wonderful performance a couple of years ago of his sixth symphony, Symphony in E Minor, which is a, a really remarkable work. It was, uh, had its first performance in uh, about 1947, and uh, it's four continuous movements, all with very different kinds of qualities. It's a very aggressive piece in many ways, but the final movement, it's called an epilogue, and it's about 10 minutes or so of something that barely rises above the level of a piano, dynamic. It's unbelievably intense and just stark and, and terrifying in its intensity. And after the concert ended, I heard people going out that were just shocked. They were utterly taken aback. They wondered why they'd never heard this piece before. They wondered, if, you know, what are we going to be able to ever hear his other symphonies here? This was a great experience. And, and I know that audiences are open to it if, if they would just be given a chance to hear them. So it'd be wonderful to hear those program more widely in the United States.
0: Well, let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with uh, Eric Saylor, who's Professor of Music History at Drake University. Uh, he's author of the book Vaughn Williams. It's out from Oxford University Press uh, just this year. And uh, American Festival Chorus and Orchestra is uh, going to be presenting a program of Ray Von Williams uh, that is this Saturday, 7.30 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. There will be a pre-concert lecture called Bright Portals of the Sky, Choral Music of Ray Williams, given by Professor uh, Sailor. That's at 6.30 p.m. preceding the concert. You can get tickets from the uh, website AmericanFestivalChorus.org. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're featuring uh, conversation and music of Rayfon Williams, a great British composer, on today. That's ahead of a concert to be given by the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra uh, it's at the Dane's Concert Hall on the USU campus this Saturday, seven thirty p.m. And there will be a pre-concert lecture, Bright Portals of the Sky, the choral music of Ray Vaughan Williams, given by Drake University Professor of Music History, Eric Saylor. That's at 6.30 p.m. preceding that concert, and you can get tickets from the website, American Festival Orchestra, American Festival Chorus, rather, dot org. And we're talking with Professor Saylor on the, uh, the program uh, today. So, Professor Saylor, I wonder if you'd tell us a bit about the man uh, Ray Rayfawn Williams. We've, you've talked about, a bunch about the composer. Uh, tell us a little bit about the man.
1: He's a remarkably human person, which sounds like sort of an odd thing to say, because obviously all composers are human, but some certainly seem more human than others. Um, one of his early biographers, Michael Kennedy, had a, a wonderful turn of phrase that he used to describe him. He called him an extraordinary, ordinary man. And I think that's a, a really great way of capturing it. He seems remarkably normal in a lot of ways, because, of course, we tend to think of composers as being these these people who exist, you know, almost in the realm of pure thought or creativity. They seem so far beyond us in their abilities and their skills and their accomplishments. And while Vaughn Williams certainly has a, a storied and very successful career and he works very hard, um, he has to work very hard because he's not a composer who is sort of fully fledged from a very early age. Um, He struggles to write music. He struggles to go ahead and figure out what his musical voice is going to be. He doesn't have huge amounts of success right away in his career. He only sells his first piece uh, for publication when he is just about 30 years old. He's closing in on that. Um, Actually, he had just recently turned 30. It was a a little song called Lyndon Lee that he sold to uh, a new publication called The Vocalist. Um, and he sold that and another song for the princely sum of, I think it would today be about $350. Um, and there's very little in his early background to suggest here's one of what's going to be one of the great composers of the century emerging. And I like the fact that he works very hard at what he does. He doesn't take himself terribly seriously, but he takes his craft very seriously. Um, I also like the fact that he's quite funny. Uh, his his uh, correspondence is all widely available now. It's been published in Book Forum. There's also a website, uh, von uk, in which you can go ahead and browse his letters for, throughout the course of his career. Uh, and and he's, he's very witty. He's funny. He's very down-to-earth in an awful lot of ways. He seems like the kind of person that you would enjoy spending time with, and he really seems to enjoy spending time with people as well, which I think is, is kind of a, a rare thing for a lot of artists. He seems, again, very human, very normal, <laughs> again, in a lot of ways, which we don't always expect from artists.
0: I mentioned uh, you, you list some contradictions, some paradoxes of, of the man, the composer. Uh, one of those kind of, I guess, re- gets into what you were saying, his struggle, right? I'll just read here from the book. Um his, de- his dedicated work ethic and fastidious attention to detail never quite banished his fears of failure and incompetency. I guess that was a, an ongoing struggle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it came from his own training, um, because he felt when he was at the Royal College of Music and later at uh, Cambridge that his colleagues and his contemporaries there, he, he felt, and he said in, in almost as many words, that they just seemed so much you know, more skilled than he was. He felt like such a rank amateur in their company. Um, He also had a close cousin of his, uh, Rafe Wedgwood, who was two years younger than him. Um, He was a a cousin of his. But the relationship between the two makes it almost seem like Vaughn Williams is deferring to Wedgwood, uh, that that Wedgwood almost seems like the senior person in the relationship. Um, They have friends who are really quite, Uh, remarkable, you know, uh, G.E. Moore and uh, Maurice Amos and people who go on to some really astonishing levels of accomplishment and reputation. And he, I think, is kind of intimidated by that uh, quite extensively early in his career. And I think that dogs him. He has periods of time over the course of his career where he feels a little bit dried up, where he's not sure if he's going to be able to write anymore. And usually he works through them. Usually there's some kind of opportunity that comes along that really pushes him through. Um, But the closest that I think he almost came to giving up was in the 1930s, shortly after Holst had died in 1934. Holst, who was his closest friend and one of his very few really close musical confidants, um, he just felt like he was starting to get into a bit of a slide and um, really almost, I think, gave up until he met uh, the woman who was going to become his second wife, Ursula Wood, In 1938, and their relationship really kind of revived him in a variety of different ways and led him to a a great Indian summer of a a career for him.
0: Another paradox I want to have you talk about. Uh, You say uh, he felt that cultural nationalism could facilitate international understanding and cooperation.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a strange thing to go ahead and say because it doesn't seem like the two things should go together. When we talk about nationalism, oftentimes there's this, that undertone that this is sort of a chauvinistic kind of thing, a big jingoistic flag waving, my country is better than yours kind of quality. Whereas Vaughan Williams is much more of a much more what we might today describe as a multiculturalist. That is to say, when he's thinking about wanting to go ahead and advance the cause of English music, it's not so that people from Britain, composers and musicians from Britain can come to dominate the European landscape. What he wants to have them do is to take their place at the table with the rest of uh, composers from European nations, whether it's France or Italy or Poland or Scandinavia or Germany or where have you. Because for so long, a lot of the music that was created in England was sort of secondhand. It was um, derived from a lot of what was popular elsewhere. What he felt was that you could go ahead and develop the practices of your own nation and uh, allow the composers there to find their own voices so that when they did, they can not only take their seat uh, with other composers in the rest of the world, but they will have something special to go ahead and bring to that table as well. And in so doing, it enriches the musical and artistic world out there for everyone. And this is something that was very important to him. He also carried that over into his political beliefs. He was an early advocate for uh, Federal Union, which was a sort of proto-United Nations. It was an idea of a sort of United States of Europe. So it's an unusual kind of nationalism, one which sees a kind of local distinctiveness as being something that makes the whole world richer when you bring it together with other countries and traditions as well.
0: We're moving toward the end of the the hour here. I wonder, uh, anything else you'd like to say about uh, Von Williams? Uh, anything you'd like to say summing up, I guess, the man, the composer?
1: Well, again, I think there's, there's so much to him that is just fascinating in any number of regards. Someone who is creating a tradition of uh, his own out of a lot of disparate parts where we don't expect them all to work together. Someone who cares very deeply about music making at all levels from the most experienced professional to the rawest amateur, someone who believes that everybody should be able to have music and to be able to make it and enjoy it for themselves, and someone who I think, as far as composers go, honestly perhaps loves music more than almost any other figure that I've come across. It's not just a job for him, it's a calling, it's a duty, and it's a pleasure for him.
0: I want to go out with a with a piece but uh, so just alert people to the um, to the concert it's a, a concert of uh, music of Rayfon Williams presented by American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and that is Saturday 7:30 p.m. in the Dane's Concert Hall on the USU campus there'll be a pre-concert lecture about the choral music of Ray Vaughan Williams given by Drake University professor of music, Eric Saylor. That's who we've been talking to on the program here today. That's at 6.30 p.m., just an hour preceding the, the concert. You can get tickets from uh, their website, American Festival or, uh, chorus, AmericanFestivalChorus.org. Um, so, uh, and I should mention the book, uh, Vaughan Williams is the title of the latest book from uh, Professor uh, Saylor, other books out from him as well. Um I want to go out with just a bit from Serenade to Music. Professor Saylor, anything you'd like to say about this?
1: Uh, It's one of the most beautiful pieces of music that he ever wrote. It takes the text from uh, Merchant of Venice when Lorenzo is talking to Jessica on the banks of Belmont and speaking of music and what it means to him. And I think there's, there's more than a little bit of subtext here about what it means to Bob Williams, because to have this kind of discussion so directly expressed about music would have been one of the most intimate and meaningful kinds of confessions he could possibly have made. And it's just an absolutely exquisite work, originally written for 16 hand-picked soloists and orchestra, um, and has gone on to become one of his most beloved
0: works of all time. So this will be, we'll just hear a couple minutes of this. This is London Philharmonic Orchestra, various uh, soloists, Sir Adrian Bolt uh, conducting. We'll pick it up uh, just about a minute and a half in and go for a couple minutes. Before we uh, jump into this, let's end the program. Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Professor Saylor. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's hear a little bit of this. Rayfond Williams, a bit from Serenade to Music.